Hello and welcome to another episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. I'm the titular Sean. And I'm the very titular Carrie. It's the show that takes you inside the unbelievable, the unexplainable, the macabre, and the bizarre and tries to find an answer. Hello, Caroline. Hi. We are in, as promised, week three of Axe Murder Month. Uh, I promised three weeks of Axe Murders, but in preparation for this episode... I mean, look, let's play it by ear, play it a little bit loose, but I have a lot of notes for this week, so this <laughs> might turn into four weeks of axe murders. Wow. That's uh, a lot of axe murders. It is. Well, we're going to cover a lot of crimes today, although a lot of them uh, very mercifully in brief, hmm. because I think last week's details of the Velisca murder were um, a lot. Yeah. And a lot of the crimes we're going to talk about this week are reminiscent of that one. Well, they're all axe murders. They are all axe murders. They're all axe murders of whole families, um, which isn't that common a crime as... Thankfully. As you would hope. So that brings us to Bill James. I'm going to acknowledge our source for this episode, and possibly next episode, right, <laughs> right off the top, because we are very much talking about Bill James's work here and not just drawing on it. As I told you last week, uh, James is a Kansas native and a baseball writer and statistician. He actually consults for the Red Sox now and has for some years. Um, he's best known as kind of the inventor or at least popularizer of uh, what's called sabermetrics, the kind of stats-focused approach to uh, keeping track of and writing about and doing the business of baseball. Mm -hmm. He is one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people just based on his impact on the sport of baseball. So that is... Um, you know, really something. In this case, Bill James, who's also a fan of crime books, turned his attention toward the Velisca crime. Um, he actually says he was working on a book with his wife that he hasn't written yet, but still plans to <laughs> about like uh, general Kansas or Midwest history. And then he got distracted on kind of a tangent about the Velisca murders because he watched a documentary. It sounds like me when I'm researching an episode. Yes. Um, now, to James as a, he says, in a Dan Carlin kind of a fashion, you know, uh, about him and his daughter, who he worked with the book on, we're not historians, mm -hmm. you know, just fans of history. Uh, we're not, uh, they're not experts, professional experts in the field of crime necessarily, but he is a um, longtime fan of crime writing and also a... Um, you know, well, statistical genius, I think that's fair to say. So he gave these crimes and this investigation kind of a statistical focus and one that wouldn't have been possible uh, when the crimes were actually committed over 100 years ago. Mm -hmm. So all that leads James to publish in 2017, The Man from the Train, the solving of a century-old serial killer mystery. Solving? Wow, okay. Uh, yeah, no, it is... To me, it's like the most ambitious true crime book that I've ever read, because in this book, which again, he wrote with his uh, daughter, Rachel, Bill James proposes that he has discovered a previously unknown serial killer uh, who was active in the United States between the turn of the century and 1912, who may be responsible for upwards of 100 deaths. That's a lot of deaths. And the most amazing thing, they actually give you this person's name, or the per who, what they believe his name was. But you're not going to do that now, I assume. Um, actually, I'm going to tell the story in a different order than they did. So you're going to get this person's alleged name sooner than, uh, than you do reading the book. 
let me say right now, that makes this a spoiler. I mean, this book is crafted around that... Um, reveal? Yeah, kind of reveal, and they tease forward to it a couple of times in, in a, a really pleasing way. So, well, I don't think it ruins the story at all. Um, if, if I did, I wouldn't share it here. But I, I, I'm going to start at the end of the story, which is the beginning of the killer's story. All right, Christopher Nolan work. Let's do this thing. Because the Jameses don't get to his origin, if you will, until the very end of the book. Um, and I think that's effective in the, in the way that they're telling the story. But I want to present kind of a more linear narrative here. But let's start with Bill James. Bill James was investigating the Velisca crime. And to him, it seemed right off the bat to be obviously the work of an experienced criminal and possibly a psychosexual serial murderer. There's elements of that crime that look like someone who has killed before and maybe just killing for pleasure. Well, he literally pleasured himself at the scene of the crime, so... Uh, yes. Yes, a slab of bacon was found <laughs> porked at the scene. <laughs> that shouldn't be the thing that, that says he pleasured himself, but here we are. So Bill James began searching newspaper accounts from the area and from the time and quickly uncovered more murders um, in the surrounding years and surrounding towns and states of the Velisca slayings. Uh, the vast majority of the crimes he was finding were within four miles of a railroad crossing or the intersection of two railroad lines. And for that reason, James started working on a theory that whoever committed the crimes in Villisca was traveling from place to place via the train and committing similar murders elsewhere. Real passion project. Yeah. Uh, so at some point, he got his daughter, Rachel, involved as a research assistant first, and then he kind of upgraded her to author of the book because she, he said, had just made contributions um, in the research and in her conclusions that just couldn't, you know, couldn't be ignored. It was beyond research assistant level. There's some chapters in the book that are written in her voice, for sure. You'll remember when we were talking about the Velisca crime, when the private investigators were grasping at straws. What was that, Wilkerson? Uh, J.N. Wilkerson, yes. And the man who he was trying to frame as a uh, serial murderer mm -hmm. was William Mansfield. Remember, he, he tried to make the case that William's Ma William Mansfield had been hired by Frank Jones to uh, kill the Moore family. Yeah, Jones was really Wilkerson's target. Yes. Uh, but this, since he... I don't know, obviously wasn't capable of actually committing this uh, crime. Wilkerson tried to find a hardened criminal he could pin it on and say that Frank was connected. Um, now, Mansfield likely did kill his own wife, uh, her infant child, and and her parents. Maybe I shouldn't say that. I don't think he ever was uh, went to prison for that crime. Um, he may have done that one. He certainly had no connection to the Velisca murder, mm -hmm. uh, nor did he have any connection to the murder in Paola, Kansas, that had occurred just four nights before Velisca, which Wilkerson uh, claimed he could prove Mansfield was in the area for and claimed he could prove that the same person had committed those two murders. Mm -hmm. Now, Bill James would tell you that there's no way Williams Mansfield committed that crime and that Wilkerson never had any proof that he was in the area and he was just blowing smoke like he seems to have done through that whole investigation. But James would agree that the murder in Paola, Kansas, on June 5th, 1912, was committed by the same person who killed the Moore family. 
Rollin and Anna Hudson had both had their heads crushed in their beds while sleeping uh, with an axe or a similar blunt instrument. Um, interestingly, I shouldn't, I'm not laughing, but Anna's maiden name was Axe, A-X-X-E. That's too bad. It's, unfortunate is probably the only word we can use. Yeah. Now, cast your mind back to that Velisca crime of last week. Listeners, I'll give you a moment, if you haven't listened, to uh, go back, you pause us, go back and listen. I'm, I won't know. Okay, and now we can continue. The Hudson's heads had both been covered with sheets before they were bashed with the axes. Mm-hmm. Anna Hudson's jewelry, including a watch that she was wearing, were left in plain sight, not taken. The killer seemed to have entered through an open window in the opposite bedroom from which the screen had been removed, but all the doors in the house were locked up tight. And on a box next to the bed, a lamp was left with its glass chimney removed. Hmm. Now, the main theories advanced in the Paola crime at the time all had to do with a pig-faced man <laughs> who, uh-huh. had, who had supposedly asked around Paola about the Hudsons the night before. He said he was an old friend and he was in town to visit, and then neighbors did report the same pig-faced man appearing at the Hudson's door around 8.30 that night. Okay, let's stop at pig-faced man for a second. Um, what? Yeah, he's a man with a with a pig's face. Well, you know, one is of those... it is it like the Twilight Zone episode with the pig faced people, or is it like his nose is kind of squished and he has a fat face? I think this is just an ugly guy with a squished nose. Okay, that's the what pigs I think. Can be cute though, so I agree, but not like on a person's body. No. So police investigated heavily uh, because this pig faced man. Some neighbors did report seeing him leave around eleven. Some never saw that. Um, the pig-faced man <laughs> theory was investigated by police, but he was never found or identified. Uh, and uh, Bill James dismisses it as a, a red herring, which you, there's a lot of in crimes from 1912 when you're dealing with just the newspaper reports. Mm-hmm. But he does note, it's kind of interesting, many of the victims uh, of the crimes that Bill and Rachel investigated... Many of the crimes they suspect were committed by their killer. Um, the victims had visitors on the same day that they were killed. And they all had animal faces, like animorphs. No, but if you remember, um, the Moore family had been entertaining the Stillinger girls all afternoon, the day before they were all killed. Mm-hmm. And it was speculated that maybe our killer had been watching from the barn, perhaps, seen the girls playing outside, and gotten the idea to do the crime at, at that point. Um, so Bill James says, hey, maybe this fellow was watching, you know, uh, kind of he would get off the rail, rail line or whatever. He's watching for uh, people who are entertaining or obviously at home. And so um, many of these murders just happen to be people who he was able to see come to their door to, to greet someone during the day. There are elements there. So so what do you think when you hear the sil- the similar elements with the lamp being moved, um, with the heads being bashed in, with the blunt side of an axe, uh, under the blankets, guy came in through the uh, back window, he locked up all the doors. Was there bacon involved? There was no bacon involved. Mm. Still weird. Still weird enough to, th- to make you think. It's a lot of coincidences. Mm-hmm. And so... I don't know. Let's. How many families do you think are murdered in the United States per year? 
I don't really think about it, Sean. Neither do I, but Bill James <laughs> decided to do it for a job for a little while mm-hmm. and not murder people, uh, investigate <laughs> them. He says uh, from the period of 1890 to 1920, they, f- they found every murder of a family they could. They're not all covered in the book, but they counted them. Um, he says from 1890 to 1920, there was an average that they could find of about eight families murdered per year. In the United States. Like full families. Full families. All at once. And I, I think that doesn't count family annihilations, where a father will kill the whole family and himself. <laughs> I like how you say the father, because it is usually the father. Yeah, mother. I mean, sometimes mothers will drown their kids or whatever and mm-hmm. then kill themselves. But it, the father does it more often. And those crimes are much more common than these crimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, people being murdered by strangers is really, really uncommon. So like I said, now I, I do want to skip back. The Jameses lay out 40 to 50 crimes in this book. Each one the murder of a whole family with an axe or similar instrument found on site and then discarded on the scene. In basically all cases, nothing is taken robbery-wise. In many, but not all of the cases, there is a prepubescent girl at the scene. Mm. In many, but not all cases, if there is a prepubescent girl, her body has been paid special attention to, say the other members of the family are left in their beds and she's been moved or posed or something like that. Mm. Um, The family's faces are always covered with uh, cloth or clothing or their sheets. The windows are often covered with uh, clothes, pillows, bedclothes, cloth of some kind, and the doors are locked up tight before the killer leaves. And then you have the lamp. That's the other kind of telltale is a a lamp. And again, that's different from a lantern, right? This is a kerosene, like a glass lamp with a uh, little glass chimney at the top to guard the wick. Mm -hmm. In many of these cases, we are going to see, as in the Velisca house, where there were two lamps, both left on the floor with their chimneys removed, as if someone had been carrying around the carrying them around the house. No reason to remove the chimney, by the way, when you're carrying it around the home. Um, We're going to see that element a lot, too. So the Jameses found a whole bunch of these crimes, eliminated some of them, started forming patterns, and they laid out a timeline that I'm going to give you as clearest I can from beginning to end. And you said that they had figured around this time period, on average, eight families a year would be killed. Uh, yes, although during the period in the middle there, when they believe... Well, yeah, when but when they believe this happened, it's like 50 to, to 60 or something extra families were killed. No, no, no. Uh, the, those, these, those crimes are counted in that total. Okay. So counting the... Bill James calls this guy the man from the train. Mm-hmm. Counting Bill James's man from the train crimes, the average from 1890 to 1920 was about eight per year. But during the years when the Jameses believe the man from the train was active, uh, from about 1905, let's say, to 1912, it's an average of 10. And in particular, 10 families were murdered in 1910, 19 families in 1911, and 14 in 1912. So he's driving up the stats. Um, yeah, there's uh, 
mitigating factors as well. Remember that our friend, the New Orleans Axeman, was working in... Mm, not my friend. It certainly wouldn't be your friend, Miss Ferrante. Mm, yeah. Uh, don't open a grocery. Wasn't planning on it. Um, he was active in 1911 and 1912. So that would have driven up those murders. And there were also a series of murders that were probably unrelated to the crimes we're talking about today uh, in Louisiana and Texas. And I'll mention those as well. And they do. Clementine Barnabet does warrant an episode of her very own at some point, but I'm going to let the axe murders cool for a little while first. Clementine Barnabet? Yeah. Wow. Oh, just wait. <laughs> I, I kind of like Clementine Barnabet. Oh, boy. The earliest crime that the James is connected to this series, and again, it's the last one just about, just about the last one that they tell you about in this book, happened in Brookfield, Massachusetts. Oh. Carrie, when we look at that Velisca murder, the one we started with, it does, I mean, what caught Bill James's eye is it looks like the work of a practiced serial killer someone who has been working at it and 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 getting better at it um people basically every neighbor talked about how squeaky the stairs were on the way up the moore house on the way up the moore families uh to the second floor Mm -hmm. there's just like a couple of stairs that would squeak horribly no matter what you did there was no amount of quiet you could walk on them that they wouldn't squeak and so there was a lot of talk during Reverend Kelly's trial about like, well, how can this like, you know, this guy can barely get around his yard um, with, without, his, without his wife uh, uh, tripping him and pushing him over some neighbor's back. Uh, he's, how is he going to sneak up the stairs quietly? And There were no squeaks. Well, we don't know. Everyone in the house was murdered. No squeaks. What Bill James thinks is that our guy didn't care about squeaks. Our guy was charging up the stairs. And the murders were done within a minute. Right. No one has a chance to get up. Which doesn't sound like Reverend Kelly from what I from what I know about Reverend Kelly. Anyhow, the Jameses believe that the man who committed that crime had been dedicating his life to murder for almost a decade at that point and had committed his first crime nearly 15 years earlier. Wow. The earliest one they found, and Rachel James takes the liberty of writing this chapter because she says Bill didn't want her to look before 1900. Too early, couldn't possibly, this guy couldn't have been killing that early. But she found a murder from Brookfield, Massachusetts, January 7th, 1898. That seemed to be such a clear match that in her mind, at least, and in her father's mind, they had the guy who had done the murders in Villisca. Well, a lot of people who end up being serial killers have a first murder. Sometimes it's they... Well, you have to. That is a little earlier than everything else, a little separated, because it might be the first time they lose control. They don't really know what they're doing yet. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer did this. He, um, he, I think he kind of accidentally killed a guy or he like blacked out and didn't realize it. 
And um, I think he stopped killing after this, thought it was a fluke for a couple years. They think Ted Bundy might have killed um, to cover up years a, earlier like than to, they thought. Like to cover up. A, a lot of these guys, a lot of those, a lot of the kinds of serial killers who prey on women will kill to cover up a rape. Right. But, but these, um, yeah, I mean, that could be it. But it, it's also... Again, a loss of control. They don't realize they're a killer yet. It's not very deliberate. Um, so then, it could be something like that. And then they realize they like it. Yeah. Once you pop, the fun don't stop. Yeah. Anyhow, on January 7th, 1898, one Francis D. Newton and his wife and their young daughter, Elsie, were all murdered with an axe, with the blunt side. Newton had been born in New Braintree, Mass. in 1853, and he uh, started out in Brookfield with a milk route, real humble beginnings type stuff, and later got the money together to open his own bakery. He met his wife in Brookfield, got married, they adopted a daughter while also buying a farm that they, like, fixed up and turned into a, uh, a working, profitable concern. On the morning of January 8th, the farm was very, very quiet and neighbors noticed the 15 cows that the Newtons had mooing because they were their udders were swollen with two days of milk and they hadn't been fed. The dogs were barking like crazy from inside the house. A couple of neighbor guys went over, milked the cows for them, uh, and then left. It kind of gossiping, it sounds like. Like, what is he? He's not going to feed, feed the... If they were going to leave town, you got to tell us to milk the cows, guy. <laughs> But as they were walking away, it sounds like they got a little nervous. Like, wait, he he would have told us, right? Mm-hmm. He would have told us. Uh, went back and broke into the house. This is a familiar scene that we'll see over and over again, and have already seen over and over again with yeah. with these you know family axe murders. When the neighbors arrived, the entire house was locked up tight, all of the doors. Um, but the men were able to find a way in through an unlocked window with a broken pane. Inside, the house was trashed, um, I mean, full animal house styles, uh, clothes everywhere, drawers scattered around, uh, uh, you know, yanked out of the dressers and thrown on the floor, papers scattered around. Francis Newton's head had been smashed in, in his bed, by four blows over his left temple with the blunt side of the axe. The blankets were tightly piled over his face. And there were no signs of struggle, so it seemed clear he had been attacked in his sleep. His wife and daughter had each been hit five times with the axe. The coroner noted uh, the attacks on the women seemed more vigorous because there was blood spatter on the head of the bed and on the walls in their room. And in Velisca, the only actual cut with the axe made was to the mom, right? The mom's torso, I think, is the only thing hit with the sharp side in in that crime. Mm -hmm. Newton's wife and little Elsie had both had their nightgowns thrown up, and their bodies had been hit with the axe as well as their faces. Mm. The axe lay on the floor near their bodies. Uh, All the wounds had appeared to be made with the blunt side of the axe. The murderer had crawled out the window, leaving all the doors and windows uh, locked in the house apart from the one he had exited through. And there was a 10-gallon can of kerosene left next to a soaked pile of wood, I mean, soaked with kerosene, in the house with a lamp lying nearby that the killer had apparently flung at the pile, like, out through the open window 
on his way out, hoping to light the house on fire. Hmm. The fire didn't take. Like it was, the wood was singed a little bit and then just had, had gone out. Now, the Newton family had a new farmhand at the time named Paul Miller. M-U-E-L-L-E-R Miller, the German way. Um, He was an immigrant from Germany or thereabouts. People say he was German, but he could have been from Austria. You know, he had a thick Germanic accent. Miller Miller wasn't on the farm. He wasn't dead with the family. He had been last seen late the night before, headed for the train. Interesting. Now, Miller had been hired in the fall of 1897, so just a few months before, after he'd gotten in a, like, loud dispute with his previous employer outside the Newton's farm. Like, they were passing on a cart, and he was like, well, you know what? Screw this, then! And he threw his hat down, marched up the walk, and just asked Newton if he was looking for help. And they were like, this seems like a guy we should hire. Yeah, he's a stable guy. <laughs> Let's put him in the stables. Um, Miller was given a bedroom right behind, uh, Newton's. So he slept in the next room over and, um, he was described as an efficient and agreeable, but cranky worker and a skilled woodcutter and laborer who, um, would also repair things around the farm. He had, uh, I think built a plow for Newton shortly before these murders that Newton was really happy with. Um, He was also a hideously ugly and awkward man. Would you say he had a pig face? (laughs) I don't know if we would say pig face, uh, because it doesn't talk about a turned up nose exactly, but Miller was about between five foot four and five foot five. Not that there's anything wrong with that, Carrie. I mean, I'm under that, so. (laughs) With long, greasy hair and tiny, widely spaced teeth. That's the the main thing that comes up in descriptions, um, because he was... Mentioned in the paper a few times before this, he had, like, helped um, a local horse get better. <laughs> okay. No, there was a lame horse that they were just going to kill, and he was like, hold on, I'm not bad. Hold on, I'm not bad with animals. That's not a good German accent. Okay. <laughs> and How do you do German accents? I would have to listen to it first. I'm not bad with animals. <laughs> You just sound like Hitler, <laughs> like you're doing a Hitler accent. Hold on, I am not bad with animals. <laughs> so aggressive. Um, so he had like, you know, this horse they were going to kill, he had like fixed it up and made it made it better. He was, uh, I don't know, he'd been mentioned in the paper a couple times before in relatively positive connections. However, after the murder, of course, a $500 reward was offered and a manhunt ensued along the rail lines for Miller, who had been seen at various stops uh, trying to pull down a red plaid golf hat low over his eyes to avoid being seen. It kind of worked because then all anyone mentions is the red golf hat. And then he, I mean, just stayed. They were always kind of one station behind him. And after a few stops, a few cities, he was gone. Maybe he swapped out the hat at some point. No one ever saw Paul Miller again. Well, maybe not under that name. It's probably not under that name. He doesn't come up ever again, and Bill and Rachel James believe, well, he wasn't exactly setting off on a life of roving murder just yet. This was the beginning of a, a very transitory life for him, just kind of moving from logging camp to logging camp and staying um, one step ahead of the law, right? So this is the guy? Paul Miller. Yay, we did it! We did not do it. Bill and Rachel James did. And if it really is Paul Miller, 
Um, by the way, I, I, you know Harold Schechter? <laughs> yes. The um, I mean, maybe the foremost authority on serial killers, the foremost civilian authority on serial killers in America, let's say. Mm-hmm. Um, He's authored a bunch of great books about different killers. A really disturbing one about Albert Fish mm-hmm. is in there. I think he did a good John Wayne Gacy, definitely Ed Gein. Yep. And uh, he says that this is the most, by far the most compelling explanation for the Velisca crime. <clears throat> wow. Uh, after he read this book. So. That's big praise. Let's talk about the similarities between that Brookfield crime in 1898 and Velisca. In both cases, we have the doors locked up tight. We have the window shades and blinds completely closed and the windows covered. The whole family killed with the blunt side of an axe after bedtime. Um, One of them is hit in the body, but all victims are hit repeatedly in the head. The victim's heads are covered with cloth. A prepubescent girl is among the victims and she's exposed sexually after death. Jewelry and valuables are left in plain sight, leaving robbery out as a motive. And in Villisca, if you remember the, the police at one point, I'm not even sure what the evidence they were basing this on. Um, the police believed they were looking for a left-handed murderer. Mm-hmm. Paul Miller, noted in those newspaper reports as left-handed. And there's also weird stuff going on with the lamp. And also weird stuff going on with the... Yes, yeah, well... It could, different weird stuff, but weird stuff. Yeah, different weird stuff. He, certainly moving a lamp around is an element, uh, a pattern that, that we see with these with these crimes. Uh, oh, and last but not least, he's last seen going for the rail line, and all of the other crimes we talk about in this book basically were right next to the railroad tracks. Well, he's not the man from the bus. <laughs> um, the next crime that they cover, the, the Miller doesn't seem to have immediately gone out and started murdering again, as I said. The next crime the Jameses cover was in Shirley, Maine in, on May 12th of 1901. When the Allen family was murdered, J. Wesley Allen, his wife Mary, and their 14-year-old daughter, Carrie. Oh, no. Yeah. Early in the morning on May 13th, the Allen family's neighbors saw the glow of a fire over the hill and didn't think anything of it. Must be lighting a fire to keep warm. Um, Fun bonfire, you know, who knows? The next day, they found the burned-out house of their neighbors. Wesley Allen had been killed in the barn. His head smashed in with some blunt object. There were two large pools of blood nearby. Mary and Carrie Allen were both found charred beyond recognition inside the house uh, in separate rooms, although I believe the family all slept in one room. Mm-hmm. There was a bloody axe head found in the yard, although no handle. Um, in this case, uh, a French-Canadian named Henry Lambert was convicted of this murder, um, and he spent 20 years in prison for it, but the... I don't know if it was the governor or the Supreme Court. Somebody convened a panel, re-looked at the evidence, and said, this guy's innocent, and let him out. Um, So we're not sure, and even Bill James isn't sure, if this was Paul Miller who did this crime, but the murder of the Allen family happened two miles away from the railroad tracks and two miles from a hobo camp. It did take place in a logging area with lots of railroad tramps kind of moving in and out doing work. Um, That's another pattern we see. Uh, Most of the crimes that Bill James looked at here happened in logging areas. 
And by the way, when we say hobos and tramps, we're talking about very uh, specific to this time period. Almost a subculture. Yeah. Th- there was a whole... We're, we're not... Talking about homeless. We're not talking about current day homeless Yes, people. we're not We're not talking um, down about anyone. But... No, no, a hobo or a bum or a tramp is a guy who rides the rails, has no fixed address, um, uh, rides the rails often for free from place to place, working jobs uh, as he gets them. Hmm... That's very interesting. Now, Bill James's serial murderer, whether he's Paul Miller or whoever he is, if he existed, Bill James says the man from the train was not a hobo per se. Uh, he didn't just ride from town to town to town to town to town. He didn't just roll into town, kill someone, and roll out. Um, this was a guy, based on the dates and places of the crimes he seems to have been a guy who would settle in one place for not too long but somewhere between two weeks and four months pick up some work pick up some work at a freelance farm work or something and then when he was laid off from a job or ready to move on he would pick a family at random do the deed and get out of town it's a living um another similarity to the greater series with the Allen family is, of course, we have that 14-year-old girl victim. Mm -hmm. Now, Bill James thinks Paul Miller did do this. I'm not going to go as certain as as Bill does, but Bill likes Paul Miller for this crime, but he thinks it was unplanned. As we said, this guy's not a serial murderer with conviction yet, but he is an unstable maniac. It also seems like they weren't sleeping. Uh, they weren't. Which seems to be what he does when he is planning. This crime, you're right. Very astute, Carrie. Why did you say they didn't seem to be sleeping? Um, because the dad was in the barn and then they were in the two different rooms, even though they probably slept in one room. So Exactly right. So Bill James's theory, if it was Paul Miller, is this was an unplanned crime. Uh, Miller either maybe got a look at Carrie Allen from the road passing by, walked a little ways thinking about it and turned around and came back. Or he walked up to the house asking for a drink of water, as uh, tramps and hobos would sometimes do, and maybe was turned away harshly by the man of the house, which is how a lot of people dealt with bums and hobos. Mm -hmm. Uh, This tiny, awkward, rage-filled man who's been mistreated, presumably for most of his life, um may have just snapped and the rest of it unfolded from there Uh, we also have the house burned down which he did seem to the Velisca house obviously wasn't burned but whoever did that crime in brookfield did try to burn the house down i wonder if he used the um axe handle to light the house on fire because it didn't work the last time so he figured i have to do this in kind of a hands-on fashion and that's also why they never found it because it was burned it could be. The head also could have just flown off um, in his bloody work, if you will. But it was in the yard, wasn't it? The head was. The handle wasn't. Yeah, so... Oh, I see what you're saying, because the last killings would have happened inside the house. Exactly, or in the barn. Right. Hmm. I think the dad was probably the first to die. Uh, this, If these are all the same, in all of these crimes, the father seems to have been killed first. But when possible. Well, it makes sense. You don't want him to wake up or get wise and uh, try and beat you up. That's exactly right. Now, it wasn't until late 1903 that Bill James has Miller committing another crime. 
So that's um, it's what? It's a year and a half later. And all the way down in Cottondale, Florida. A lot of the crimes in the later part of the year or early, any crime we talk about that happens in the winter, for the most part, happens down south. Um, He's snowbird? Snowbird serial killer? He is. Well, remember, this is a guy who doesn't have a home, or not a fixed address anyway, and who works outdoors. He hated cold weather. I remember very specifically from Stephen King's It, because I've read it so many times, uh, that they were talking about a lot of these um, tramps that would go on different train lines and stuff from north to south uh, constantly. And they did say that they would often go south for the winter and do things like picking oranges and and stuff like that um, because they couldn't stand being in the cold because they didn't have homes. Right. In any case, whoever it was, someone killed the Kelly or Caffey family. Um, The newspapers alternately say that this family's name was either Kelly or Caffey or Smith in two cases. All right, different. Um, But probably Kelly or Caffey. There were five of them. Henry, Kelly or Caffey, and an unnamed wife and three small children. They had names, but um, Mm -hmm. we don't have them. They were likely sharecroppers. They had a small farm. Um, They were a black family. They were dead for several days before their mother-in-law. They were dead for several days before Henry's mother-in-law came to check on them, and some neighbors broke into the house. The couple was found in bed with their heads crushed with some blunt... The couple was found in bed with their heads crushed with an axe, the baby in bed next to them with its throat slit. Mm. Their two... Their other young kids had been decapitated with the bodies on the floor of the bedroom and the heads left on the mattress. The unwashed axe was left in their room. The killer had locked up the house tight on the way out and didn't steal anything because the Kellys or Caffys had nothing of value to steal. They were all sleeping in one room when they were murdered. Seems like a step up in brutality. It does, and if this was him, this is another one that I'm not as ready as Bill to say was our guy. The decapitations are not something we see in other murders here. Could be a racial thing. It could be, but he kills other black families here as well and doesn't decapitate them. Hmm. Okay. Um, But we do have, again, a whole family. Whole families aren't often murdered. Bill James points and, out. And thank you, God, for that. With his statistic-focused brain. Um, families aren't often murdered all at once. They're rarely murdered by strangers with no apparent motive, with no robbery. Right. If you're not robbing them, like, what are you doing? And with the blunt side of the axe is a specific type of axe murder. So, And it's not like he had a favorite axe or something. No, he was just picking them up in, in the neighboring yard, usually. It's like, why wouldn't she use a club or something? Why is it always an axe? Interesting. Um, somewhere between... Because wood as a method of heating your home was on its way out at this time, and coal and kerosene were both on their way in. Um, but still, somewhere between, again, according to Bill James, somewhere between a quarter and half of the houses um, across this area and this time would have heated their houses with wood primarily. Which means there's wood piles and axes in 
just about every second or third house you pass. Hmm. <clears throat> uh, and if our man was a logger, then he um, knew what he was doing with that axe that he probably swung a thousand times a day. Yeah. So there's a comfort there. He was probably beefed up. Uh, yeah, a tiny, a tiny, beefy little man. Just an aggressive lumberjack. If the Kellys or Caffies were killed by the man from the train, this was the beginning of his life of true serial murder. From here on out, he would blow into town, work a job for a few months until it was time to move on or he was laid off, pick a family more or less at random, and do his bloody work before getting on the train, usually a few feet away from the door, to head away to the next town. And we'll follow his bloody trail across the south after the break. Ooh. One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty, and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back. When last we left you, we had just covered, well, uh, won't won't surprise you, uh, given the nature of this show, this month, and this episode, but we just covered several brutal axe murders, uh, most recently that of the Kelly or Caffey family in 1903 on Halloween night. Now, as I said, Bill James is pretty sure that that was committed by Paul Miller, that crime. I'm a little less sure than Bill is because of the... Um, decapitations of the children, the uh, slitting of the throat of the baby. These don't seem like typical behaviors for our guy. But again, locked house, nothing stolen. Um, Whole family murdered with the blunt side of an axe near, well, the kids were murdered with the sharp side, but near the railroad. So Mm -hmm. uh, it's tough to say. If that was our guy, this was the beginning of his murder spree across the South. Now, these crimes actually were found by the Jameses later on. It was his uh, later crimes, those closer to Villisca and across the Midwest, that uh, they found first. Uh, These were harder to find, and then once they found them, harder to get info on. You see, over the course of, really over the course of when this guy was killing, uh, literacy jumped like crazy in the U.S. Mm -hmm. and in the South. And so since the crimes we're dealing with here are in the South and from a decade before the Villisca murder, At the time, in the region, less than half of children were in school. Less people could read. And that means less newspaper coverage. And that's not taking the South down a peg or anything like that. That's just No, people were farming more and farmers needed their kids around the house to farm. And um, yeah, kids were working more than they were in school. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I think I read that in... 1910, like less than half of white kids in the South were in school, and it was obviously lower for minority children. Mm-hmm. It seems like Miller, um, after the Kelly or Caffey family, decided to commit himself 
fully to this um, just new hobby he had found of hitting people in the head with axes. Well, if he liked what he was doing, he still hadn't been caught if he had done those three crimes, so why not? That's true. As I said, he seems to have uh, probably headed south as many traveling loggers would have done um, during the winter months, but he was still down south, specifically in Statesboro, Georgia, on July 28th of 1904, when the Hodges family were murdered. Henry Hodges had been uh, hit in the head with a blunt object outside his house around nightfall, and his house had been burned to the ground. Some interesting details with this crime scene. Uh, Henry Hodges' hat was not found with his body. He was found outside the house, but his hat was some distance from the house in the road, along with some scuffle marks in the dirt and blood. Hodges' wife, Claudia, and his daughter, Kitty, had both been sexually assaulted and had both been hit in the head with an axe, the blunt side, until they were dead. A purse with several dollars in it was found near Claudia's body. And two other small children, a baby and a toddler, were both found to have died in the fire. Did Claudia and Kitty die in the fire? No, they were hit in the head with No, but I mean, I'm sorry, were they found in the remains of the fire, is what I meant? Uh, Yes, they were. And they still were able to tell that they were assaulted? No, I believe Claudia and Kitty were both found inside the house, but their bodies weren't so damaged by fire that you couldn't tell. tell. Mm-hmm. Um, or tell that they had been hit in the head. Do you think he got into um, a scuffle with this man, Henry, um, and killed him and then went into the house to kill everyone else? Well, there was one other thing down by the road outside. A kerosene lamp without its chimney carefully placed on a gatepost. Some more weird lamp shit. It was still burning the next morning at 11 a.m. when the neighbors came by. What's his thing with these lamps? This one does seem like the guy, right? I mean, he's lamping it up. That's his thing. That is his thing. It's like the wet bandits in Home Alone. It's his calling card. Um, now, Bill James suggests that the some of the speculation in the papers at the time was that... Um, Claudia must have come out with the lamp and placed it on the lamppost and then had been dragged back inside by the murderer. Like she had come out to investigate the sounds of her husband scuffling. Mm-hmm. Um, but the idea, Bill James points out, the idea that she would like come out, see her husband murdered on the ground and then carefully place the lamp without its chimney for some reason. Oh, uh, the papers also thought the chimney must have blown away. And been broken. Or just say that the guy brought out the lamp. Why Why go through all these hoops? Well, because why would you? Why would anyone do it? Because we know this guy loves lamp. We know that, but they didn't know that. Well. He loves the lamp. He does. Catch He's... up. Now, very sadly, because I think if, if Paul Miller was a serial killer, and if Paul Miller did any of these crimes, I think he did this one. Two black men named Will Cato and Paul Reed were horribly lynched for this crime. Oh, no. Um, And there was much more detailed newspaper coverage of that event than of the murders of the Hodges family. Um, At the time, white newspapers were telling stories of before-day clubs, 
which were allegedly organized mobs of black men roving the countryside and killing white families. And uh, so that is, as far as the newspapers were concerned, that's where blame was put for the uh, Hodges family murders. So were these two men just wrong place, wrong time? Uh, yeah, there was very little case against them. I don't have the... Well, it's not like they went to trial. No. Uh, and there are several crimes covered in this book, like too many. Um, a fistful of crimes in this book are um, resolved, if you will, with a lynching in the end. Oh, God. That's um, horrible. Because many of these crimes were unsolved murders of white families in the South in 1904 and 05. And it wasn't a good time. It just wasn't a good time. Yeah. That, that, yeah. <sighs> Our guy still seems to have been in the South, specifically Trenton, South Carolina, December 8th, 1904, when Benjamin Hughes, his wife Eva, and their teen daughters Emma and Hattie were all murdered with the blunt side of an axe, and their house was set on fire. All three of the women were found in bed with their heads crushed, uh, Eva's head specifically had been covered with a pillow before it was hit. Hmm. Um, it's not specified whether the other women's heads were covered or not. Benjamin Hughes was in the hallway, not in the bed, and he was wearing clothes, and he was shot, not killed with an axe. Hmm. So that is a significant break from the pattern. For sure. Usually people don't switch up their weapons. Uh, no. And this led some newspapers to speculate that this was a family annihilation, that this um, Benjamin Hughes had murdered his wife and daughters with an axe and then shot himself, which is a, a much more common, as we said, type of crime than a stranger murdering a family with an axe. Was the gun left behind? Yes. The gun was found next to his body. Um, although we don't know if that was the gun used to fire those bullets. Ballistics weren't hot like that yet. <laughs> sure. Um, now, Bill James, who, remember, is trying to make this case fit into his Man from the Train theory, says that it's more likely because, uh, well, if this guy's going to shoot himself, why wouldn't he just shoot the three women in the house first and then kill himself? And why would he kill them with an axe? Um, he says it's more likely that Miller was caught by the husband who was still awake when he started murdering the wife and daughters. The husband confronted him with a gun and um, Miller would have rushed the husband, gotten the gun from him, killed him, and then finished off with the daughters. Oof. Um, it's possible that the man from the train carried a revolver. He seems to have been a very, very careful guy. Um, he doesn't seem to have liked killing with it, but that doesn't mean he wouldn't have carried one for protection. But I don't know. I don't see a guy wielding an axe and a revolver. I guess you'd have to have it stuffed into your pants. I wonder if lumberjacks have to carry a gun with them in case some sort of wild animal comes at them. I doubt the logging company is providing it. No, but maybe he had it for protection for that. Well, listen, the life of a rail tramp can't have been I mean, a safe yeah, one whether you too. were murdering families or not. Mm -hmm. And this is not a safe hobby. Murder? Yes. Yeah. Um, in this case, the newspapers, because, I, I don't know, a, a big assumption I had going into this was that newspapers and police departments of the time just didn't have the uh, nationwide attention 
or networks to put these crimes together, Mm -hmm. right? But in fact, in smaller subsections, many of these crimes were linked at the time. And newspapers in the South immediately connected the Hughes murder to the murder of the Hodges family in Georgia just a few months before. But rather than a serial murderer, they just reprinted that same theory about the before-day clubs that were supposedly murdering white families. Oh, God. And tried to use the excuse to lynch some more black people, although I don't think uh, anybody was lynched in connection with the Hughes murder specifically. Later that month, on December 25th, 1904, James and Virginia Linkus and their adopted child were asleep when... How do I say this? The next crime comes on December 25th, 1904, in Radford, Virginia. So at this point, he seems to be moving back north, although slowly, right? Stopping, taking a couple months at a work site, or a couple weeks uh, before each crime. James and Virginia Linkus lived with their adopted child in an upstairs unit, while Mrs. Texas Butterworth lived... Sorry? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And the lady living upstairs was Virginia, too. You've got Virginia and Texas... And this is Mrs. Butterworth. Mrs. Texas Butterworth. Yep. Mrs. Butterworth lived downstairs with her mother and her son. Wow. Okay. At 4 a.m. on Christmas of 1904, Mrs. Butterworth woke up to find her house full of smoke. She quickly moved to get her family out. She actually had to like leave because of the smoke was too much, so she had to leave before she could get her mother. But then her son went back in and got her. Whole family was safe. Meanwhile, upstairs, James Linkus awoke to the same thing. And his story later would be that he ran out of the house thinking his wife and child were right behind him. They were not. I think that's probably just what he said. Now, neighbors, including Mrs. Butterworth, said that they yelled to Linkus, where are your wife and kids? Go back inside. Save your family. But he just busied himself protecting the pile of firewood he had next to the house and making sure his livestock were okay. The house is about to be firewood, bro. At one point, a neighbor said, and the neighbors also said the fire like grew and shrunk at different times. And at, at one point, it, it was like not looking that fiery (laughs) like like the house was smoking basically and a neighbor was like aren't you gonna go in and get your wife and kid and linkus was just like it's too late he couldn't explain his behavior later except by just panic and you know uh, trying to keep the fire from spreading more he said he was afraid the firewood would let the fire spread more and in fairness people do crazy things and some people don't react well to pressure however No one had to worry about Mrs. and baby Linkus dying in the fire because both had been bludgeoned to death before the fire was set. And Linkus didn't realize this? He said he didn't realize it. But because of his very strange behavior that morning, he was arrested and then moved to the next county to protect him from the lynch mob that was forming outside of the jail. He was ultimately convicted and executed for this crime. Do you think he could have done it, though? Yes, I do. I do think he could have done this. Yeah. And uh, but Bill James thinks this is uh, the another man from the train crime. But why wouldn't Linkus be dead? Well, the only explanation you could stick with there is he just either 
Didn't realize there was another person in the house, but that doesn't seem likely because it was such a small apartment they were living in. Mm-hmm. And uh, Linkus wasn't sleeping next to Virginia. They slept in different rooms. So it's possible he just wasn't looking for a husband because he had already killed the wife and there wasn't a husband next to her. Uh, but it's also possible he was interrupted. Now, can you think of a sound that this man could hear while he was murdering that would make him immediately have to cut off what he was doing and run? A sound. Um, a, a gun cocking, a siren. I don't even know if they would have sirens at this point. A Not sound? like you think of today. But Bill James thinks he might have heard a train whistle. Oh. And then would know his last chance to get out of town for maybe the next couple of hours was about to come by and then bend out of sight. And he had to get over to the train stop before the train made its, you know, brief pause and carried on to the next place. Hmm. Well, it was a holiday. Maybe, uh, Maybe the train times were all off and he wasn't expecting it to be there at that time. It could be. But in any case, uh, James Linkus was convicted of that crime. He was executed for that crime. He may very well have committed that crime. I'm, I'm feeling a little weird about James Linkus. I don't know. But the only things, I mean, he was obviously on, he was at the scene of the crime because he, but he says he was asleep. But the only evidence we have that he actually murdered his wife and child are how weird he was being. True. I don't think he should have been executed. Um, but I think he's suspicious. Very suspicious. Mm-hmm. Moving west a little in Marion, Arkansas, the Boylan family was killed February 7th, 1905. Father Albert, Mother Anne, and son Rush were all murdered with the blunt side of an axe that was left in the house. Uh, there's not a lot of information on this one. Again, not a lot of newspaper coverage in certain areas of the South, especially tiny towns like these at this time. Um, and also, these murders all happen not in small towns, but outside of small towns on uh, isolated farms. Think of that Hinterkaifeck crime we talked about all the way back last year. That will change later on, by the way. The later crimes uh, that the Jameses believe Paul Miller committed are committed in small towns like Villisca that are too small to have a police force. Mm-hmm. Strategically. Uh, yes, he believes so. Mm-hmm. Um, And that's just because I think the guy's method of murder changed. Um, At a certain point, he he stopped really picking victims. He stopped researching victims. He stopped stalking victims and started just, uh, in Bill James's head, getting off the train, picking a house, walking in, murdering everyone inside, and getting back on the train. Like a compulsion. Like a compulsion. Uh, Bill it James. Seems like, I mean, it does seem like a lot of work, too. Bill James says this was this man's favorite thing to do. He loved it. This is almost a direct quote. He loved it the way other people like riding a roller coaster or going to the beach. He particularly loved hitting small girls in the head with an axe. Ugh. In the Boylan family case, again, February 7th, 1905, we're at at this point. Um, the house wasn't locked up. The house wasn't set on the fi- on fire. There's no weird lamp stuff. Um, but I just want to mention it because it was in a lumbering region and near a railroad and because families aren't often murdered by a stranger with an axe. Mm-hmm. In Jacksonville, Florida, 
later that year, September 21st of 1905, Lula Wise and all four of her children had their skulls crushed in their beds before their house was set on fire. An axe was found among the charred remains. And I'll just point out here, you'll, you'll hear September a lot. Um, late September is the busiest time for Miller, if Miller is doing these. Um, and that's possibly connected to seasonal activity at the sawmills. Hmm. Uh, if he was committing these crimes as he was laid off from a job or moving on from a job, James says the sawmills in this area of Florida would be shutting down right around this time as they moved out of the logging season. Right. So it would make sense that late September would be a, a good time to slay in logging country. Yeah, it's like a teacher going on summer vacation. Um, yeah, and isn't that a nice thing? You gotta have, You got to find your pleasures where you can. Not anywhere. Not anywhere you can. <laughs> um, he was in Cottonwood, Alabama. Maybe. Now, we already had a Christmas murder, right? And a Halloween. And a Halloween. But on February 7th of 1906, a family named Christmas. Jeremy Christmas, his wife Martha, and their 11-year-old son, Slocum. Slocum Christmas? S-L-O-C-U-M. Slocum Christmas. Mm. Murdered with the blunt side of an axe in the one room that they all slept in together. There was money left in plain sight. There was also a safe in the house that was left totally untouched. And there's not a whole lot of other information on on that crime. February 16th, just a week later. And this one is interesting. In Dominion, Nova Scotia. Oh. Anton Stetka and his wife and their two kids were bludgeoned to death with an axe and their house was set on fire. The axe was left behind. The crime was committed right next to a railroad. The railroad was apparently like literally within 10 feet of their back door. And the front door was locked or jammed shut. Neighbors had to like push it out, break it open. It's really kind of hard to believe that this could have been the same guy who committed the crime in Cottonwood, Alabama on February 7th. I think a week would be enough on train. It would. You could make it. But if this was him, it would be the only cold weather crime other than Brookfield, Massachusetts that Bill James covers in this book. So that's a pretty significant break from the pattern. Maybe he was visiting someone. And while you're right, you could travel the 2,000 miles from Cottonwood all the way up to Nova Scotia, Dominion, Nova Scotia, in under that eight days that he had to do it, or nine days that he had to do it, But the next murder that we're attributing to Miller comes on May 13th of 1906 and in Allentown, Florida. So while it's not impossible that he could have made a quick jaunt up the East Coast and then come back down to the South um, in the springtime, it just seems like a weird break from um, (coughs) what seems to be a pattern otherwise, even in later years. Yeah, I think something would have had to bring him to that area specifically whether it be uh, some sort of family thing or obligation, I don't know. I mean, I he seems like a, a rover, so I don't really know. But yeah, it might not be him. And just not enough information to speculate on what that might have been. But that murder in Allentown, Florida on May 13th of 1906 is probably the most victims this person ever claimed at the same time. Uh, that's right, even more than the eight killed in Villisca as itinerant preacher Edward 
Maybe. Some newspapers say Edward Ackerman. Some just don't have a first name. His name might have been Edward. Uh, In any case, Ackerman, his wife, and their seven children all had their skulls crushed and uh, their house was set on fire. Ackerman was found near his bedroom door with a revolver. Hit in the head. Uh, Mrs. Ackerman and their infant child were found outside the front window of the house. Hmm. And the oldest child, a 14-year-old boy, was found near the door leading to the front porch, a few feet behind his mother. The other boys in the house were murdered in their beds. So it seems like to me, and and let me know if I'm getting this wrong, that maybe there are so many people that uh, as he was killing the first kids, Mm -hmm. Uh, other people woke up and maybe tried to flee. Yep. Our, Our guy typically entered through the rear of the house. According to Bill James. So let's say he enters through a window in a back bedroom. Um, Within a minute, he would have killed several of the children. Mm -hmm. Bill James speculates that the mother was nursing at this time. Um, Let's say the killer's coming in at 11 or 12. Let's say he's coming in at 1 or 2. James speculates the mother was awake and nursing. And he says, if you've ever had a two-month-old baby, you'll know why. Uh, In any case, the mother would have heard something poked her head out into the hallway, screamed, began to flee. That would alert the husband, Ackerman, who would pull on some pants, grab his revolver, and walk out into the hallway just in time to be hit in the side of the head with the axe blade as the killer was running toward the door to catch the mother and infant. The oldest child, 14 years old, and his mother are both running for the door, her with the baby in her arms. The axe man catches both in the back and fells them with one blow. Jeez. Um, This was the murder of a white family in Allentown, Florida in 1906 with no apparent motive. What do you think the papers said? Someone should be lynched for this. In the Hutchinson News, it said, quote, The suspicion is that shiftless Negroes traveling from one turpentine camp to the other committed the crime, inspired simply by a fiendish desire to take human life. This is a newspaper. Well, fake news. (laughs) Um, But it goes a long way towards explaining the total lack of progress in these crimes, along with the, you know, I mean, these small towns didn't have police departments as we said but also when you're determined that someone's committed a crime and you won't listen to anything else then there's no way to solve it every newspaper and private eye in the area just goes like up oh, this was obviously a, a couple of black guys or a gang of mexicans and that's where it stops every time in barber junction north carolina the Lyerly family were all murdered july 13th of 1906 so this is just a couple of months after allentown and maybe our guys speeding up Addie Lyerly was the middle of three daughters and she woke up to her house full of smoke um, probably woke up because she was asthmatic as she ran downstairs Addie found her father dead in bed head crushed you guessed it with the blunt side of an axe Um, Her father shared a bed with her brother, John. This was a pretty common practice at the time. Mm -hmm. Um, John was also dead. And the bed was on fire with both of them in it. 
Someone had taken a bureau drawer, covered and filled it with kerosene, and then dumped it on top of John and lit it all on fire. Jesus. Addie's mother was found lying halfway out of her bed, bludgeoned to death, and hit at least once with the sharp side of the axe. Although her head was covered by a pillow, so Addie didn't see all of that detail. Maybe, thankfully, all at once. I'm sorry. It's much later than I thought it was. Mm -hmm. It's almost eight. Should we order something before it gets too late? Oh, okay. In bed with her mother, Addie found her youngest... Addie found her younger sister, Alice, moaning in pain. She found her other sister, whose name I don't have here. The two girls got the fire out with pitchers of water, just running back and forth to the spigot with pitchers. Um, They carried their little sister to a neighbor's house where she unfortunately did die of her injuries. And it won't surprise you that a few neighboring sharecroppers were arrested, ultimately dragged out of the jail cells by a mob and lynched for their crimes. Uh, lynched for the crimes they almost certainly did not commit. Well, at least there's a nice part of the story with these two heroic kids. But Truly. That's, that's awful. Um, there's this second layer of tragedies in a lot of these crimes where um, someone, and, and a lot of times... Just some random person. Really horribly. A lot of times it's some random black guy who happened to live near or be walking near the murders. Um, but but there's also, you know, a, a husband or brother or just someone who was vaguely connected to the family who just gets in the crosshairs and ends up being executed. We see it over and over again. And Bill James does count those people toward this guy's body count. That's fair enough. After the murder of the Lyerly family, we hit a hiatus. The Jameses could find no crime that they could connect to this series between July 13th of 1906 and March 6th of 1908 Hmm. that seem even remotely related. Um, Murders of families in the United States dropped in uh, in their, (laughs) their frequency during this period. And uh, it's unclear whether um, either this guy left North America and was murdering elsewhere. Remember, he was from another country. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be some other life change. Prison? Uh, prison is a popular uh, reason for serial killers to stop murdering for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, or some of them will stop killing for a while because they're in a relationship and trying to Um, be a human being or because they stop drinking and drinking triggers their crimes or uh, something like that. If you want to know what Bill James believes, uh, he does think that it was prison um, because he believes Miller was incapable of uh, relationships and doesn't think that he drank very much, if at all. Um, I think it's probably prison. I mean, there's any number of things that uh, they would arrest tramps for back in the day so yeah why not yeah could have been you could be held uh for up to 30 days or something in most places on a charge of just vagrancy which was just not having a job or address right so um that's only 30 days but say he was caught breaking into a house either with the intention of murdering or just to do some thieving this guy never stole from the people he killed but that doesn't mean he didn't also do burglary you know Mm mm-hmm Although we do know he probably worked for his money. The next crime that was possibly related won't come until, as I said, March 4th of 1908. 
And the next crime that I'm pretty sure this Henry Miller guy committed was in Hurley, Virginia on September 21st of 1909. And it's there that we'll start with the man from the train's increasing uh, frequency and ferocity as we lead up to the Velisca murders that started this story off and may ultimately end it. That'll be next week. All right. <laughs> so what do you think uh, so far, Caroline? This guy sucks. Yeah, of course he does. He's a serial murderer. <laughs> um, it, I think it's a fascinating story. I think it really brings a lot of things together. I wonder if any of our other axe murder stories, like the Axeman of New Orleans or maybe Hinter Kaifek, will uh, figure in somehow. It just seems so similar. As I said, the Axeman uh, was active, as, as we know, in 1911 and 1912. I promise you I will be mentioning both the Axeman uh, and Hinter Kaifek next week. So, um, might be bringing together a lot of stuff we've talked about. Get the edges of your seats ready. <laughs> All right. Um, and, oh, last thing, and I'll say this next week as well. Go if, if any of this is interesting to you in any way, go out and read this book. It really is the best book I've read in a long time, just of any genre. I love The Man from the Train. I don't love the guy. <laughs> um, but I love this book. Uh, I was uh, gripped and entertained by it. It's not written as a narrative of Bill and his daughter going through the facts. It's more like he presents the facts, so you feel like you're going through them with Bill and Rachel. And uh, he, he gives you the cases in an order that kind of uh, lets you uh, come to the same conclusions they did in the same order and direction. So... Pretty cool book, and we will get into the rest of the murders, as I said, uh, next week. But for now, I don't know. That's enough. That's enough axe murders for one week, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, keep your doors and windows locked, folks. Yeah. And we have, uh, boy, I don't know, a dozen more family axe murders for you next week. As we finish the story of The Man from the Train. Oh, do, do you think this guy killed the people in Velisca? Yes. You don't need you, but we don't even need to do next week. Then. You're convinced. <laughs> I do. I don't think he's killed everyone that you've mentioned so far. I, agree. I do think there's lamps. There's a lamp. He loves lamp. He loves lamp. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport, then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins, convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I can no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction. And you'll hear it from the experts people who run the cons. So we go to your bank, you go in and get 6,000 cash, give us each 3,000, we give you this. Uh -huh. You go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper. It's fun to know how the trick is done, and that's what Scams and Cons is all about. Listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found. It's Lizard People Big World. Ooh, back again. 
Well, we have a, a bit of a laid-back conspiracy this week. It's not very scary at all. Um, okay, hit me. But it has captured the public's imagination. Uh-oh. The Oscars. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> we have to do this? Well, only the conspiracy, because uh, nothing else is relevant to us. It's been well covered, although, again, more, more ink should have been given to Chris Rock's unbelievable professionalism. Continue, Carolyn. Yeah, so just to, to sum it up real quick, I'm sure you've heard about it already, the slap heard around the world uh, during, uh, near the end of the... Shit show. Oscar um, telecast, I guess. Uh, Chris Rock was up on stage. He was about to present, I think, Best Documentary, and he was making a couple of jokes, which I believe were unscripted and not it vetted by the producers. Felt very ad libby to me, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, he made a couple jokes here and there, and then I, I think if if Chris Rock is writing a joke, he can do better than GI Jane. Well, that's the thing. I think it was it's just his an off joke. the cuff reference. Yeah, just off the cuff. So he, yes, as Sean said, he made a reference to the film G.I. Jane, where Demi Moore shaves off her head and becomes bald um, in regards to Jada Pinkett Smith, who was right up near the front because she was with her husband, Will Smith, who was nominated for Best Actor. And this was after he was, he only said that after he said like, uh, it w Will better win this uh, Oscar or something like that. Something like that. That was why he was looking at them. <clears throat> yes. And... So, uh, and then Will Smith went, ha, 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 laughed his big laugh. So he did laugh, but Jada was not thrilled. I, I, I noticed her big, annoyed, angry eye roll right away. And the cameras cut away, so we don't really see what happens within the next couple seconds. And then Will Smith walks up on stage, um, takes a second and slaps Chris Rock across the face. Yes. Now... I thought it was a bit through this part. I never, th I never thought that. I thought it was a bit through this part until we got to Chris Rock's reaction to the slap, and he was bamboozled and befuddled. And Will yelling. Yes. Well, well, that was right after, and um, and then the the telecast starts to like cut around a little bit because there is swearing because Chris Rock said, "Will Smith just slapped the shit out of me." And, and Will Smith said, keep my wife's name out of your fucking mouth. Twice. Um, and it, it was very uncomfortable. And that's when I definitely guessed, oh, this is not a bit. Mm -hmm. This was not planned in any sense. So where's the conspiracy? The conspiracy is that, not that it was a bit, but it was planned. And the, all the drama... Um, is basically to help promote the Oscars, which have been seeing a, a sharp decline in ratings in previous years. I don't think this is the kind of publicity they want. Be be no, but they do want, they're desperate to have people watch. And on Tuesday, a Twitter user shared what appeared to be a, a magnified image of Chris Rock's face right after Will Smith hit him. And uh, in the picture, he appears to be wearing some kind of cheek pad. And um, this is the, the picture that was, that was on the, the Twitters. Is it doctored? Well, here's the thing. Um, some people think it is. The professional images of the slap, <laughs> the slap from the same time. You're talking about the Zachary Kinto series <laughs> from NBC? I mean, you can see in the professional stills, there is no cheek pad. Right. Um, now, are these photos doctored? Who knows? Now, the website Gizmodo 
said that this could be a artifact from upscaling the image and um, basically, I guess that's like adding pixels to it. Mm -hmm. And that could have created these kind of lines on Rock's face that look like a pad. Turn a wrinkle or a shadow into something else. Mm -hmm. Kind of um, sharpens it, makes it look strange. And some people said that there is another thing that could have happened where Will Smith could have had a, a fake hand. Why? Why? <laughs> some, uh, according to the Independent, uh, some users falsely claimed Smith used his left hand to hit his chest to generate the sound of the slap. Sure. While others said that he used his left hand to hit rock. Um, if you see in the video of the incident, Left hand is first in a defensive position as he slaps Rock. Then it kind of swings behind him from the momentum of the slap. Some people were saying that either there's some sort of fakery afoot or he is doing a stage slap, which again would be kind of creating. You could stomp or or slap yourself at the same time to create the sound of a, a real slap. Yeah, I've watched Lucha Libre, Carrie. I know. Right. Um... So yeah, so those are those are some of the conspiracies. I still have been seeing a lot on social media that it it was something that Chris Rock and Will Smith planned for what reason, who knows. Um but yeah, that that's that's the whole conspiracy behind it so far. There's no no. I mean, it's just it's just a no, right? There's no world in which first of all, I think it looks bad for the academy that And I don't think Will Smith would have done it for i mean like for what it looks so bad for him and helps him out not at all yeah he's about to win the oscar it couldn't have been that they offered him money he doesn't need money no it just would have been better for him if that had never happened yeah and the the cheek pad thing is just so funny to me because why would you do that why would you need the a visible or any kind of cheek pad actors (laughs) slap each other in movies and plays all the time right it's not a big deal right it's just people trying to trying to stir up the drama, but I, I love the idea of an Oscar's false flag, so I had to share it with you all. It was beautiful, and I'm glad you did. That's it for this episode of Ain't It Scary with Sean and Carrie. Like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Ain't It Scary, and check out our website at ain'titscary.com. You can support the show by supporting our sponsors and becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash ain't it scary. And please subscribe to the show and throw us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and also now on Spotify. We'll be forever grateful. Yes, and also come join us on Patreon if you want to. we got a lot of great content over there and a wonderful growing community. Special thanks to our beloved top-tier patrons, Nate Curtis, Sean O'Donnell, Jared Chamberlain, Maria Ferrante, Robin McCabe, Comfy Mike, Alex Nakutis, Ryan Regan, and Christy Atchison. We love you very much, guys. <laughs> See you next Thursday. Show created by Sean and Carrie McCabe, music by Kyle Ryan, and you can find Kyle at his YouTube channel, Music is a Verb. This has been a production of Longboy Media. <laughs> I'm Richard Serrett. Join me on Strange Planet for in-depth conversations with the world's top paranormal investigators, alien abductees, Bigfoot trackers, monster hunters, time travelers, alternative archaeologists, remote viewers, and more. As I was on the way to Area 51, I was stopping on the side of the road and just taking measurements, and I found this one spot where time slowed down by a fraction of a second. It's not supposed to do that. 
from the two big categories, animal mutilations and human abductions. You have to conclude that genetic material is being harvested. Well, I reached for a rifle and uh, I, I turned and looked and it was, it was already moving away and it was descending the bluff. Uh, there's no way any human could have went down it. It was probably a 75 degree angle straight down almost. On Richard Serrett's Strange Planet, we're redefining reality. Listen now wherever you get your podcasts. Do not go any further. Turn around. Go home.